pediatric patients in respiratory emergencies. Respiratory failure is the most common cause of respiratory arrest and cardiac arrest. And that's a little bit different and unique comparing that to adults. Oftentimes when adults go into medical cardiac arrest, there's a higher instance anyway, instances that it's cardiac in nature. It's not the case for pediatrics. And most of the time their hearts are in very good working order. It doesn't have those years of wear and tear on it like adults do. So if a kid goes into medical cardiac arrest, it is more than likely going to be caused by a respiratory issue. Common causes of up are upper airway obstructions, chokings, things along those lines, and lower airway diseases. While we're dealing with our pediatric patients, we still do our traditional scene size up, start preparing yourself that we could be dealing with a kid based on things like dispatch information, and move on to our primary assessment. Try to roll out, look for clues to roll out trauma. And again, just, just like in adults and pediatrics, oftentimes if they're having a hard time breathing, we're going to be able to see that during our general impression. As soon as we lay eyes on the patient, we're going to get a sense that, hey, they might be having a hard time breathing. Assess mental status, airway, breathing, circulation, your ABCs. Signs of respiratory distress for a pediatric patient. Signs of respiratory distress, again, typically precede failure in, infant, in kids. They, again, they typically go from having a hard time breathing to not breathing adequately on their own. So as we're looking at that kid, as we're assessing that kid, things that we're looking for, accessory muscle use, tachypnea, rapid breathing, tachycardia, rapid heart rate, nasal flaring, and cyanosis to the extremities. All of that is going to be an indication of respiratory distress. And retractions you appear to be more prominent early on in respiratory distress. At some point, they're going to start tiring and they're not gonna be able to use some of those accessory muscles. So respiratory failure, on the other hand, <clears throat> pediatrics can start going into bradycardia as they get more and more hypoxic. Now they're into respiratory failure, they're not breathing adequately on their own, and now their heart rate is slow and hypotension as well. And again, same is true for pediatrics as it is in adults. Anytime you see bradycardia, slow heart rate, Due to hypoxia, due to a respiratory cause, that is a very ominous sign. And if we don't take steps to correct it, patient's going to code pretty quickly on us. Expiratory grunting. Every time that they exhale, they're grunting a little bit with each one of those exhales. Central cyanosis is more of an indication of respiratory failure. So peripheral cyanosis, the extremities, the fingertips, the toes, Etc. often with pediatrics means respiratory distress. If we're starting to see it in their trunk, that is central cyanosis, and that is more indicative of respiratory failure. Abnormal breathing, slow, fast, irregular breathing with head bobbing with each breath. Again, they're just using everything they can, including neck muscles in their head, to try to draw in as much air as they can when they breathe. Loss of muscle tone kind of flaccid, not moving extremities, and lethargy, having a hard time keeping their eyes open, extremely, just appears extremely drowsy. Our care for distress and failure. 
Again, we want to allow the child to assume a comfortable position. Smaller kid, allow mom or dad to hold the kid while we start our assessment and treatment. Again, don't remove the child from the caregiver until it's time to transport. Supplemental O2, and if the patient is not breathing adequately, now we're going to start bagging the patient, cause the pressure ventilations with the BVM, and that BVM will be hooked up to oxygen as well. If the child doesn't tolerate the mask, they don't want the mask on with the strings around their head and so forth, have the parent hold the mask as close to the kid's face as the kid will allow. And again, we refer to that as blow-by. Be cognizant of potential upper airway obstructions from foreign body or diseases, croup, epiglottitis, uh, or examples of diseases, obstructions, or choking, or foreign bodies are choking. Croup is a viral infection of the larynx, trachea, and bronchi, is prevalent in children, and is characterized by a seal bark type of cough. Kind of like the whooping cough, that seal bark cough, the first time that you hear it, it's kind of one of those sounds that will, that will stick with you and you won't uh, forget it. So if they have that seal bark cough, and the seal bark cough is the telltale sign of croup. Anytime you see on like a test or so forth that documents or talks about seal bark cough, it's referring to croup. We treat croup with oxygen, preferably humidified oxygen. That humidity can help open things up for the kiddo. Remember, epiglottitis is also a possibility as well. Croup, again, is viral. Epiglottitis is bacterial. And if we suspect epiglottitis, avoid looking in the airway unless a foreign body obstruction is truly suspected as a cause of the patient's problem. Reassessment, the kiddos. Transport any infant or child with difficulty breathing. If they have kiddos having a hard time breathing, they need to go to the hospital to be evaluated by a physician. It may not be too severe right now, but it can rapidly progress. So if they had trouble breathing or are currently having trouble breathing, always encourage mom or dad to let us take them to the hospital. Provide reassure, uh, reassessment, in route to the hospital. And again, things can change quickly, especially with kiddos. So be prepared to intervene. Keep a close eye on them. If they do start going bad or going south, step in quickly and, and treat. Geriatric patients. Respiratory distress can have many problems or causes in our geriatric population. And just because of their age, they're up there in age, they've already had kind of years in, of wear and tear on their body systems, including their respiratory system, their respiratory function may already be slightly diminished or pretty dramatically diminished. And, and geriatrics can, again, progress very rapidly from respiratory distress to respiratory failure. Again, their bodies, just like with shock, bodies aren't going to be able to compensate very well for when things go wrong in the body. Seeing size up, primary assessment, again, rule out trauma. Things that we may see that are going to indicate the patient's having trouble breathing, labored or noisy breathing, tripod positioning of the patient. As it's progressing, they're becoming more and more hypoxic. They can go completely unresponsive. And as we actually get to patient side, 
doing a more hands-on assessment, we may find other signs and symptoms as well. Secondary assessment for our geriatrics, respiratory distress again can quickly proceed to respiratory failure. So again, be aggressive on our management, keep a close eye on our patients. Elderly patients decompensate rapidly, so they will crash quick. And again, just because of age, uh, it is difficult for the geriatric patient to move the rib cage. Again, so that's already kind of diminishing their ventilations because their chest doesn't move as easily as younger patients do. So again, just indications or reasons why they can crash pretty quickly. Care for a geriatric, comfortable position, SpO2 sats are less than 94 with respiratory distress, hypoxia, hypoxemia, or poor perfusion, then we're going to administer supplemental O2. Again, in most cases, we tend to start, for medical patients anyway, we tend to start with a nasal cannula. Treat the conditions that they're experiencing. If it is COPD, wheezing present, we can give our breathing treatments, et cetera. And then reassess en route to the ED. Okay, so we've already covered patient assessment on the previous couple of chapters ago. For most of the conditions from chapters coming up, kind of how the chapter ends is we take kind of what we learned today, the different disease processes, et cetera, and we kind of plug that into our patient assessment process. We've already kind of done that with pediatrics and geriatrics. This one's going to be for pretty much everybody. So our best assessment, best approaches for respiratory emergencies. Again, we're going to start with our scene size up. Look for clues as we're approaching the scene or listening dispatch information to what could be going on with the patient. Again, evaluate the scene for any possibility that this may be trauma-related. As we're walking through the residence or the scene, again, look around on scene for any indications of what could be going on. Alcohol, common contributor to choking and upper airway obstruction aspiration, and vomitus. As soon as we lay eyes on the patient, we start our primary assessment, starting by forming that general impression. Again, the patient may be in the tripod position, obvious respiratory distress, mental status using the AFPU mnemonic. Then we move into our ABCs, airway, Ensure that they're breathing adequately on their own. Part of that, again, is also assessing the need for uh, oxygenation as well. Circulation. So again, general impression. As soon as we approach, we lay eyes on the patient. This is how we find our patient. So we have a young female patient. Appears to be in the tripod position. So she's in obvious respiratory distress. Again, to learn a lot from the patient without even talking to them as soon as we lay eyes on them and kind of get a feel for what's possibly going on. As we're assessing that mental status, other things that we're looking for, AFPU mnemonic, but we're also looking for restlessness, agitation, confusion, or where they could be completely unresponsive. Again, that may be an indication of hypoxia. The brain is getting deprived of that oxygen. Airway, assess the airway for any indication of complete partial obstructions. After we assure the airway is open, we move on to assess breathing. Watch the patient breathe. Look for good, adequate chest rise and fall. 
the patient's unresponsive, we can listen and feel your air flowing from the patient's mouth to ensure that they are breathing. Auscultate lung sounds. And again, with respiratory emergencies, auscultation of lung sounds is going to be very important, and we need to do it pretty early on in our assessment. Uh, to determine an approximate respiratory rate. And shallow breathing is an indication of inadequate breathing. Again, the two things we look at is rate and tidal volume. So both of them have to be adequate in order for the patient to be breathing adequately on their own. So 14, slightly shallow, they're probably breathing adequately on their own. They're breathing eight times per minute, very shallow. We definitely know they're not breathing adequately on their own. It's too slow and tidal volume is poor. If the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, again, then we are going to ventilate them with a BVM and have that BVM attached to supplemental O2. If they are breathing adequately on their own, we're talking about respiratory emergencies, so a chief complaint of dyspnea is enough justification on its own to put the patient on supplemental O2. Circulation, inspect the skin, mucosa, uh, mucosa membranes looking for things like cyanosis, and assess the heart rate as well. After we complete the rest of our primary assessment, that last step of the primary assessment is to establish patient priorities. A patient with difficulty breathing is a priority patient. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean rapid transport life science to the hospital. It just means that, hey, this patient is sick. They definitely do need to go to the hospital. So, but we can consider ALS backup. If it, they are pretty bad off, then we would do rapid transport to the hospital. After our primary assessment, now we move on to our secondary assessment, with starting with our physical exam. Again, we're looking for cyanosis throughout the rest of the body as well. Other indications of something going on. JVD, extended neck veins, jugular vein distension, tracheal deviation, tension in the thorax, retractions. If we haven't done so, again, listen to lung sounds. Full set of vital signs, again, is done on the secondary assessment, including pulse ox. Any indications of difficulty breathing? If they are having trouble breathing, we're going to estimate how significant that difficulty breathing is. Is it just mild difficulty breathing or is it pretty severe? Secondary assessments also where we take history from the patient as well. So evaluate that chief complaint, OPQRST. Ethan, how would we ask about onset? Pretend I'm the patient and I'm having trouble breathing. How would you ask the O for OPQRST? Um. Sorry, can you re repeat the question? I was looking for my mouse. I'm a patient that's having difficulty breathing, and we're going through history taking. You're getting OPQRST. You're on O. How would you ask me the question to determine O? What seems to be the problem today? That's not. We already know that oh. you complaint by, by this point. Somebody help him out. How would we ask about O? Would you ask them about 
um, how long they've been or when they started feeling like this? So that would be T, which is time and OPQRST. When did the pain start? And I, I'm, I'm having trouble breathing. I'm not having pain. What were you doing when the difficulty breathing started or right before? P, it's not going to fit. Q, not going to fit. R is not going to fit. Severity, we can ask, are you having very hard time breathing or not so bad of a heart? But realistically, yes, is not going to fit as well. So for OPQRST, for difficulty breathing, it's probably just O and T is all we really, really need. Sample history is going to be important as well. Sign symptoms, allergies, medications, past medical history, last oral intake, events leading to the cause. Is there a history of respiratory or cardiac problems? This is very vital in many situations, including respiratory distress. So if we have a patient that's having a hard time breathing, we've learned that a lot of these signs and symptoms of different medical conditions can present very similarly. And again, there could be different causes. It may be CHF, it may be heart failure or pulmonary embolism, pulmonary edema, asthma, emphysema, whatever the case may be. So if we're not exactly sure what's going on, we listen to lung sounds. Yeah, we hear wheezing, but that could be caused by a number of different items as well. And, but then we ask our patient, oh, yeah, I have a history of emphysema. That's pretty much pinpointing to me right then and there. Patients having a hard time breathing. I hear wheezing. Medical history of asthma, I mean, uh, emphysema, this is going to be COPD. It's going to be emphysema exacerbation. So again, history can really help us narrow down and pinpoint exactly what's going on with the patient. <clears throat> Any hospitalizations for chronic condition? So recap of emergency care for respiratory emergencies. If the patient is not breathing adequately, we ventilate the patient with a BVM. Open that airway, OPAs, NPAs. If we're going to bag a patient that's unresponsive, especially, use an OPA or an NPA. It's going to help keep that airway open. Positive pressure ventilations with supplemental O2, rapid transport, and contact ALS possible with backup. And again, contact them as early as we possibly can. If they're breathing adequately on their own, we don't need to ventilate them their complaints, or they're in respiratory distress. Supplemental O2. Again, our goal for O2 sats is not at or above 94%. Get your full set of bottle signs. If when we listen to lung sounds, we do know wheezing is present, again, that's going to be the indication to go ahead and give a bronchodilator. So COPD and asthma attacks are the typical respiratory emergencies that we are going to give a bronchodilator for. Place the patient in a position of comfort. Again, oftentimes that is going to be sitting upright. Full, complete secondary assessment. And contact ALS backup. Reassessment during transport. Look for improvement or diminish diminishment in the respiratory distress or respiratory failure. Patient was having a hard time breathing. We auscultated lung sounds, noted heavy wheezing. His initial O2 sats were 88% on room air. So we started, we put them on supplemental oxygen. We're giving them breathing treatments. We're going to assess to see if it's improving. Does it, are they still having a hard time breathing? 
Does their difficulty breathing look as severe as it was earlier or is it improving? And asking the patient, hey man, is that breathing treatment helping? Are you having an easier time breathing? Looking at the O2 sets, are we getting a rise or an increase in those O2 sets? Pre-auscultation of lung sounds, we're giving breathing treatment for wheezing. Breathing treatment is hopefully helping the wheezing. So re-auscultate lung sounds. Has the lungs, the wheezing improved or has it stayed the same or is it completely gone now? Assess mental status and airway. Again, if patient needs to be ventilated, ventilate with the BVM. Repeat bronchodilator administration as indicated, following your local protocols. A lot of times, they, a lot of services cap their bronchodilators to a maximum of three. We can repeat them every five minutes. This region, there is no max. We just keep pouring them breathing treatments until it helps. And the patient with breathing difficulty, again, is considered a priority transport. Again, with respiratory emergencies, constant reevaluation of their breathing, making sure they're breathing adequately on their own, because again, it can change very rapidly. Closely monitor the SpO2 sets, heart rate, and consider ALS backup if not previously done. So in summary, respiratory emergencies range from respiratory distress, respiratory failure, to respiratory arrest. So remember, respiratory distress means the patient's having a hard time breathing, but they are breathing adequately on their own. Respiratory failure means they're still breathing, but they're not breathing adequately on their own, meaning we have to ventilate them with a the BVM. And respiratory arrest means they're not breathing at all, so we have to value them with a the BVM. So respiratory failure, respiratory arrest, those patients have to be ventilated with a BVM. Respiratory distress, we're not ventilating them, but we are providing supplemental O2 other treatment. There are many causes of respiratory emergencies. Infants, children, geriatric patients can present differently than adults when experiencing respiratory emergency. Again, those differences are something that we just need to keep in mind. No matter the underlying cause, respiratory emergencies have many signs and symptoms in common. Again, that we talked about that. It can make it pretty difficult for us to determine what actually is going on, what's causing that respiratory distress in that patient. Asking about history, et cetera, can really help us narrow that down or pinpoint it. EMTs must know when to administer oxygen and must be able to recognize when to provide positive pressure ventilations. Again, all we're looking at in that case is determining is the patient breathing adequately on their own or not. If they're not, poor rate and or poor tidal volume, we have to bag them. If they are breathing adequately on their own, we're not going to bag them. We'll go to supplemental O2 instead. Remember, with pediatrics, their hearts are generally in very good shape. So if a pediatric patient does go into cardiac arrest, that is, it's going to be likely from a respiratory emergency. Some patients with histories and respiratory conditions have meter dose inhalers or nebulized medications that we can assist in their administration. The bronchodilators, again, in Texas and in this region, they don't have to have that prescription. We are getting it from our stock in the truck. Infants, children, geriatric patients may present differently than adults. Again, we have to be able to be prepared to intervene properly, promptly. 
Reassessment is a critical step. Again, things can change rapidly. So constant reevaluation of that patient. And again, don't get tied up solely on the reading of the pulse ox. Certain conditions, we don't care about the pulse ox, we're going to treat it with supplemental two. Again, respiratory stress is one of them. If they have a complaint of dyspnea, yeah, we want to know where that baseline O2 sat reading is, but it's that is not going to change or prevent us from putting the patient on oxygen with a complaint of dyspnea. All right. Any questions over the rest of chapter 16?